Come on up. He's going to be preaching this morning in lieu of Alex being away this week, and we are really looking forward to hearing what he has to share with us. So, <laughs> would you welcome Ralph? All the way from Woodlawn Avenue. <laughs> This morning, I want to read to you a passage from Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, uh, chapter 3. Uh, to me, this is one of the most remarkable chapters in the whole of the Bible. Because in this particular chapter, uh, the Apostle Paul is opening his heart to us. And he's explaining to us what it is that makes him tick. What it is that keeps him moving forward. What it is that motivates his whole life and ministry. And it's something that I, I want to share with you this morning because I think it's tremendously important for us as we're preparing to go into a new year. So hear the word of God as it's recorded in Philippians chapter 3 and beginning at the first verse. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship God by the Spirit, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, as to righteousness, legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Amen. To the end of the 16th verse. And this is the word of God. Indeed. 
Some Christians take early on in their Christian life uh, what they call a, a life verse from Scripture. This is a verse which they pick out of the Scripture, which to them uh, summarizes perhaps everything that they believe God is calling them to be and to do for him. It reminds them of what he's done for them in Christ. It spurs them on when they're, when they're discouraged. It rebukes them and instructs them when they're drifting. That's the effect of a life verse. Now, I don't have a life verse as such, but if I did, it would be the tenth verse of this third chapter of Philippians, which I have just read for you. In this verse, as I say, the Apostle Paul is really unfolding to us what keeps him motivated, what moves him, what keeps him stepping out day by day, month by month, year by year for Christ. And it's this, this driving passion that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conform, conformable to his death. From the very first moment this verse was first pointed out to me, it has gripped me. I, I've known that this is a verse that I need to pay attention to and I need to build my life around. And yet it's a verse that I didn't understand by any means at the beginning as I do now. It's a verse that's unfolded itself to me in three distinct phases. And I'd like to expound it this morning to you as it has opened itself to me section by section. And as you look at the verse in front of you on the screen, you can probably see already how it divides up. But the very first part of it was the easiest part to get into my heart and mind. The part where Paul is saying that I may know him, that I may know Christ. I don't know who initially pointed this verse out to me. It was probably someone giving an account of his or her journey in Christ and who had found this verse to be so helpful. But the moment this verse was pointed out to me, it immediately struck me as something I needed because it answered right away for me something that was already troubling me in my life. At this point, I would have been in my mid-teens, a couple of years old as a Christian. But it answered something that was troubling me, and it also spoke to a hunger which I had but didn't even recognize in my life. The troubling part was this. I had no idea what to make of my life as a Christian. See, I'd been blessed to grow up in a church that was very strong on its teaching of the basic gospel. As a boy, I had learned about Jesus. I'd learned that he was the son of God. I'd learned that he had died for my sins. And the church I grew up in was, was very strong on emphasizing the fact that we need we need to commit ourselves to Jesus in repentance and faith so he becomes our Savior and our Lord. And I had done that. But that left me in a bit of a puzzle as to, well, what, what, what's supposed to happen between now and when I die and go to heaven? That was where the church was weak. It had so stressed the, the, name, the, the, the need for conversion <clears throat> that it had nothing to tell me really about living as a Christian. What was, what's this Christian life all about? And the only answer I was really able to get was, was, well, you're a Christian now. God has saved you and he's forgiven you. 
and you're going to go to heaven when you die, and now your job is to help other people come to know Jesus. Well, in a sense, that is true, but that's hardly the whole of it. And it's the whole of it that was unsettling to me because I didn't know what it was. Excuse me. And the thought of, of finding the answer in seeking more of Christ wasn't part of the equation that I was being given. And yet here the Apostle Paul is saying that he's seeking Christ. And, I, and you want to, if you grew up in the context I did, you'd want, to, you'd want to stop Paul at this point and say, Paul, Paul, wait a minute. Don't you already know Jesus? Sure you do. You, you've come to trust him and love him. You know him. Why are you saying you want to know him? Well, and the obvious answer, and you know it, I'm sure, is there's so much more of Christ to be known. When you become a Christian, you just become acquainted with Christ personally and experience. And there's so much more waiting to be discovered. And it was that that suddenly began to dawn on me. That if the Apostle Paul sees this as the, the driving force of his life just to know more of Jesus Christ, then maybe that's where I will find my rest as well. And I say the verse spoke to something that was awakening in me because there was a hunger in me that I didn't know I had. And it was a hunger for more of Christ. We did sing a hymn which expressed this. More about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. More, more about Jesus. But for the first time, I was being given not permission, but direction as to how that that hunger is to be satisfied. It's in Jesus. One thing, and, and just a quick digression for just a moment. The hunger that the apostle has and the hunger that I was learning to have is not for Christ as I want him to be but for Christ as he is. You, you see the difference. See, a lot of people are very much interested in a Jesus who is what they want him to be. But they're not at all interested in Jesus as he is in himself. And there's a vast difference. So you can think about that. But back to the text. That was the first part. And that, as I say, opened up to me very early in my Christian life. But it was several years before the next clause of this verse opened itself up to me. The clause in which the apostle says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Power of his resurrection. Now, again, I, I grew up singing hymns like there is power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the lamb. It's just that I didn't really have a whole lot of clue what that was saying, what it was all about. And it would take some years before I experienced more of the latent sinfulness of my own heart for me to understand this part of the verse. I had to learn 
that I really didn't have the power in myself to change myself. I had to, I had to, to, to come to grips with the, the terrible frustration of being unable to do anything for Christ on my own. To be absolutely dependent on Him. And it was as the experience of spiritual failure went on that I began to understand why this is so important, the power of his resurrection. And I began to see that there is a power in Jesus to enable me to live this new life that he calls me to, a power to serve him so that he, was, he would be glorified in me. <clears throat> and then someone pointed me <clears throat> to, the, to the epistle to the Ephesians. And as I read the epistle to the Ephesians with some understanding for the first time, I discovered that I was already on the receiving end of the resurrection power of Christ. I didn't know this before. And if you're not familiar with this passage, I would, well, I would love to go off on this one with you this morning, but we don't have time. But I want you to hear this. The Apostle Paul in chapter 1 of this letter in verse 15 is praying for people who are young in the faith, just like I was. <clears throat> he, and he's praying that God will do three things for them in, in particular. And it's the third that's the most important and the one I want to show you this morning. So he's praying. He says, I'm praying that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see what he's saying there? He's saying that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised you from the dead if you're a Christian. And if you don't get that, go home and read this passage. Read on into chapter 2, verse 10. At the beginning of chapter 2, the apostle spends a great deal of time explaining what it is to be without Christ. And it can be summed up with just this idea. It's to be dead. To be dead. <clears throat> And he, and he goes on in this chapter and he says, And you, God has brought to life who were dead in trespasses and sin and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, the amazing truth that was being shown me in this passage is that I was a miracle. Bonnie has trouble believing that. <laughs> But I was an amazing miracle of the grace of God. If I was a Christian, and I was, if I loved Jesus, and I did, it was because God had raised me from the dead. Yeah, I have profoundest pity for those Christians who uh, are of the sort where they have to see a miracle every day. And, and the reason I have pity for them is because invariably they are trivializing the fact that they themselves are participating, are living proof of the power of God. They're living, walking miracles, alive from the dead because of God, because of the resurrection power of Jesus. 
But as I continued to think about the power of Christ, realized that it wasn't just to transform me. It was. But I also began to notice, because by this point, God had called me into ministry, pastoral ministry. And I began to notice that there was a power available for my ministry as well. The apostle refers to this when he writes to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says he's reminding them of what they experienced when he was preaching to them and living before them. And he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And the more I became aware of this, the more I found myself praying with Isaiah, tear open the heavens and come down. I want to know the power of the resurrection of Christ in me and through me. And the more that became my heart's cry, the interesting thing is, the more I began to see the Lord's power at work in me and through me. But notice, please, that these two things go together, the presence of Christ and the power of Christ, and they can't be divorced. I have met people who call themselves Christians who are very much interested in power, but not really interested in knowing Christ in his fullness. And what I've observed about these these folks is that invariably they get lost in a spiritual backwater somewhere. And sometimes they even make shipwreck of the faith they've professed. Because the power we're talking about only comes from the presence of Christ in our lives. Well, that was the first two parts of the verse. The third part was, again, much longer before it it really dawned on me what it was saying. I think the reason I never really thought about the third part of the verse was it has an awfully ominous ring to it, doesn't it? He's saying, the apostle says, "That that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. Now, that was a puzzle. I could understand being hungry for Christ and wanting to see his power at work in me and through me. But where did this fit in? Now, I had realized, even from the, almost from the moment I became a Christian, that I didn't fit any longer in the world. I was aware that there was a stigma attached to being a Christian. I felt awkward. And some of it, of course, was the fact that I'd become a Christian as a preteen. And teenage years are awkward years, let's face it. But there was more to it than that. It was the awkwardness of realizing that I had given my heart, my life to someone who the world around me didn't recognize and didn't care to recognize. And as I began to awaken intellectually, I was very much aware that there were all sorts of intellectuals who scoffed at the whole idea of Christ. And the more I encountered this, of course, the more I felt grief that Christ was so dishonored. And then a little later, as I'd been called into ministry and I was beginning ministry, As I learned to love the church, 
I began to experience more what the apostle is talking about here. The suffering of Christ. And that's the way I came into it. I don't say you have to come into it this way at all. But as I was giving myself to the, the ministry that God had called me to, there was frustration and sorrow often at, at seeing people start to awaken spiritually and then get lost, get, get sucked into the world's way of doing things. I experienced the struggle that there is even in the church sometimes to get a hearing for the word of God. And I began to realize that I was getting a small taste of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. It's the price that has to be paid if Jesus is going to be glorified through us. Whether we're serving as I was as a pastor or in some other walk of life. It's the price that has to be paid if Jesus is going to be glorified in us. And I began to realize that if Jesus did indeed come into my life in his fullness as I longed that he would. I would be knowing more about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. You know, it's really interesting. I I, I love the Apostle Paul. The more I read him, the more I discover a great heart for Christ and for people. But there's an amazing passage in 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul, for reasons that aren't relevant here, has to set out sort of a litany of his suffering for Christ. And he tells, tells how he's been um, beaten with rods three times and how he's been stoned and left for dead and shipwrecked and how he suffers danger when he travels and danger from his countrymen, danger uh, from uh, bandits and, and so on. And he goes through this amazing list of what he suffered for Christ. And then he concludes it by saying, and besides this, the care of all the churches. And he, <laughs> Here T.S. Eliot comes to mind. You know, they hear the list ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. Like the care of all. Come on, Paul. How does that compare with all this? But it does. For Paul, there's, there's all this physical suffering that he's had to go through and the emotional angst that goes with it. But the thing that weighed down most on his soul, the thing where he felt the sufferings of Christ most was in the care of all the churches. At any rate, it was this is how this this part of the verse opened up for me. And I realized that if I was going to know Christ in his fullness and the power of his resurrection, I would be drawn into the fellowship of his sufferings. And as I thought about that more and more, my constant prayer became even so come, Lord Jesus, in my life, Lord, be glorified, whatever the cost. Now, this verse, this is, is, I think, important for us as we prepare to go into 2020. We don't know what's coming. Will the world be as crazy in 2020 as it was this year? In all probability, it will be. But this verse, I think, if we take it as our own, maybe a life verse, if that appeals to you, that thought. 
I believe it will make all the difference in how you face this year, how you live this year, and how you feel at the end of 2020. But if this verse is going to help us, then we need to grasp it personally. I, 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 I have this feeling that when I preach something out of Scripture, like the verse we're looking at, and here's this great apostle saying that I may, this is the driving passion of my life, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I have a feeling that, that a lot of Christians say, well, that's Paul, you know, and that's good stuff if you're an apostle like Paul. Or it's uh, maybe this is for um, Christians who go in for that sort of spiritual stuff. And I think I suspect that many people do that. They hear it that way. The thing we need to know is this is this isn't just for Paul or apostles or super Christians. This is for everyone who is a genuine Christian. What is it to be a Christian? It's to be called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ, God's son. That's what the, the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or the Lord Jesus defines eternal life. You know that if you're a Christian, he's given you eternal life. What's that? Well, he tells us what it is as he's praying in John 17. He's praying to the Father and he says, And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To be a Christian is to know Jesus Christ, not just in, up here, but to know him in experience. So when we hear this verse that's calling us through the apostle saying, I want to know Christ in all of his fullness. This is for all of us who know Jesus. And at the beginning of this year, I believe Jesus is, is he's knocking at the door. Are you familiar with Revelation 3.20? It's the verse where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This has been, you may, you've probably seen stained glass windows depicting this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. I'll come in and we'll have fellowship. Things will be close and good. Relationship. Now that verse is often used in an evangelistic way to explain to people who have not become Christians what it is they have to do in order to become a Christian. And that's to open their life's door to Christ so that he comes in and saves them from their sin and becomes their, their Lord and Master. But the interesting thing is that's not what the verse was designed to do. It's spoken to a church of professing Christians. And they've got some issues. And Jesus is saying to them, in effect, okay, I know you know me, but I'm outside knocking on the door. And if you will open the door, I will come in and we'll have sweet fellowship. You'll know me in my presence. We need to make this personal. You need to, and I need to take this in the same way Paul did. The driving passion of our lives that we may know Jesus in all of his fullness. But if it's going to help us, we need to recognize what I've really been saying all along. And that is that this relationship with Jesus, which we have by faith, is something that has to grow. 
Some of you are new to Courtright, and I hope you're already meeting people here and realizing there's some super people here who could become wonderful friends over time. And if I were to ask you if you've met one of us, if you met so-and-so and you were to say yes, do you know so-and-so, you could say yes, I've, I've met him. But after some time has gone by, if we were to ask you again, have you met or do you know so-and-so? At this point, hopefully the relationship is deepened and you can say yes in a far greater way, in a more significant way than you could before. The relationships here are things that have to grow and when they grow, they become more and more precious. That's the way it is when you're, you're a Christian. You have a relationship with Jesus and as it grows, he becomes more and more precious. But as we're preparing to enter the new year, we need to hear this and make it our own. But we also need to recognize that it's so easy to lose your way in this. You'll be aware that the Lord Jesus himself recognized that a lot of people begin well and fail to end. One of the parables, the very first parables that Matthew records that he told is the parable of what we call the parable of the sower. The details don't matter, but Jesus is, is talking about what happens when his word is sown. And, and there are different kinds of people, different, different hearts that respond in different ways. And he notices how with some people the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And that can happen so easily. The fog of the of simply living in a world which does not know Jesus and is trying to build life without him gets into our own heads. And we lose our way. And that's why we need to heed this verse and make it our own. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want him more than anything. I, I can't help but think of the, uh, the hymn that was written by Rhea Miller and put to music by George Beverly Shea. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain. Or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. That's Philippians 3.10 in song. Where will we find Christ? How, do we, how, how can we find more of him? And in, in the way that the apostle is, is talking about here. Well, there, there are those who would tell you to do something extraordinary. Something that you wouldn't, wouldn't normally be part of your life. Um, something like uh, cutting yourself off from the world. Going on a retreat. Seeking more of Jesus. Fasting and praying. I'm not saying those things are irrelevant. They might be relevant for you. But what Jesus says is that we will find him in his fullness. Not in the extraordinary. But in the ordinary. In John chapter 14, this is a section from what we call the upper room discourse. The things that Jesus said to his disciples 
hours before his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. And one of the things he says there is this. He says in John 14, 21, he says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So how do you know if you love Jesus really? You have his commands and you keep them. Now notice what comes next. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them. Now get this and show myself to them. How will we find more of Jesus in 2020? By having his commands and keeping them. That means things like wherever Jesus is dishonored, honoring him. Where others are faithless toward Christ, being faithful to him. Where it would be so much easier to go with the crowd It means taking a stand for Christ. It means when he asks something that seems difficult, that nonetheless we walk in his way and find more of him. When the way of the world has never seemed so attractive, it means walking in the way that Christ walked and holding to that way. If you want to know Jesus in all of his fullness, just be faithful to him this coming year. In everything, in every role that he's given you to play as a husband, wife, parent, child, worker, student. Do the things that he has told you he wants you to do and you will find him in all of his fullness. Father, thank you that it is possible for us to know Christ far more than we do today. And thank you that as we look back, many of us over decades of following Jesus, we see that he has opened up more of himself to us, more of his power, and yes, more of the fellowship of his sufferings. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done in us. We ask you to keep us faithful to you, to hear this verse that the Apostle Paul has given us this morning, to make it our own, that it may guide us throughout 2020. We want to know Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ralph, for that wonderful word. Well, uh, we thought we'd do something a little bit different um, out of the ordinary on a Sunday like this, where uh, we have um, just, yeah, just a unique opportunity to to hear from uh, someone else other than me or Pastor Alex or uh, Ralph or Allison. And so uh, what we're going to do just for a few moments is I'm going to be, I'm going to be inviting Chelsea Giesbrecht to come on up. Everyone give Chelsea a round of applause. And uh, those are not my questions. These are my questions on here. Um, we're going to do a little interview. So Chelsea, uh, as she's about to explain, she's uh, recently returned from somewhere, which she'll explain in a moment. And uh, we're just looking forward to hearing a little bit about what God's been doing in her life. And so um, 
For those who don't know you, can you uh, just tell us who you are and where you've been serving? Yes. Well, I'm Chelsea. Um, I've been at Corewright like my whole life, so a lot of you probably know me or have seen me around. Um, and I'm 19, so I graduated high school like a year and a half ago. And this past year, um, I've been spending most of my time with YWAM in a couple different like discipleship and Bible schools with them. And so uh, you did a stint. Where was your first stint? And then where was your second stint? Because you did two stints, right? Yes. Um, yeah, so my first stint was, um, so I spent six months doing a discipleship training school with them, um, and they run them literally all over the world. Um, if you don't know YWAM, it stands for Youth with a Mission, and they're like this huge mission organization. Um, and so a DTS is you spend three months at one of their bases, um, doing what's called lecture phase, so just like learning and hearing from really awesome speakers, learning more about worship and prayer and session and all that and then you're sent to another nation um, for your outreach so I did my lecture phase in Kona Hawaii which is like their main base Um, and then I did my outreach in Nepal and Peru so that was like my first six months I came home for the summer and then I went back in the fall back to Kona um, to do the school of biblical studies with them um, and that's nine months so I'm going back in a couple days but that's where I've been for the fall um, and that's more of like an intense school I have like tons of homework but it's really fun they do talk about we, we did talk about suffering for Jesus this morning in Hawaii and uh, I <laughs> I, I know you do, you guys are doing wonderful, wonderful things. And uh, so I'd love to hear, um, maybe just for those who, who haven't heard your journey a little bit, what led you to do ministry with YWAM? Yeah. Um, so I first heard about YWAM when I was in grade 12, and it was like the fall when everyone's like deciding where they're going to go to university, applying, and I didn't know what I wanted to do next, like the next year, except I didn't want to go to university, like, whatsoever. Um, I knew that much, so I was looking into a ton of different, like, Bible colleges and gap year programs, and I heard about YWAM, like, really randomly through, like, a friend of a friend, like, over social media. I saw that she was in Hawaii, and I was like, what are you doing? And she had, like, YWAM Kona in her bio, so I, like, Googled it this one night, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. I thought it was so cool. Um, how you could, like, go on an outreach mission with them, which I always love, like, um, just, like, education opportunities where you have a chance to, like, put what you've learned really into practice. Um, So that's kind of how I heard about it. Um, And then I learned that I actually did know, like, a couple other people who had done, like, a DTS in the past, so I talked to them, and it just seemed like such a good fit for me. And, yeah. Awesome. So um, what kind of... Could, could you describe for all of us just some of the kinds of ministry that you were doing, uh, maybe specifically when you would go to Nepal and Peru, you said as well? Yeah. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about what kinds of ministry you were doing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the types of ministry I did in Nepal and Peru were really different. Um, Nepal is like it's technically illegal to preach the gospel um, and stuff like that. Um, it's not like insanely dangerous. Like we never got... Well, we got in trouble once, but it wasn't that bad. Um, <laughs> it was like, whatever. Um, so we couldn't do any kind of like open air preaching or really like public stuff like that. So we mostly did all street evangelism. So like every day we had like contacts, like long term missionary 
people there and they'd be like, okay, we're going here today. Um, and it wasn't random. Like we spent the first two days in Nepal, like just praying and like hearing from God, getting pictures of like what he wanted us to do. Um, so for example, like one person was like, oh, I saw like a picture of a woman in Indian clothes. So they were like, oh, well this neighborhood of Kathmandu has really heavy Indian influence. So we're going to go there. And we just spend like the whole day, like talking to like random people on the street um, and getting to know them. And then preaching the gospel to them and, like, praying for them, stuff like that. Um, We did some ministry with, like, churches and remote villages. So we did a couple treks um, and just, yeah, partnering with them and some, like, local Christian businesses. But for the most part, it was literally just, like, going out every day to, like, different parts of Kathmandu and, like, spending hours on the streets just talking with people, which was definitely a huge stretch for me. I, like, don't like talking with strangers, but um, it was really really just like incredible to like um really ask myself like what I believe because that's what I was telling people about and then Peru we were only there for a couple weeks um for this big event um called one day one nation one day which I don't remember the organization that put it on but it's this big thing so we did a lot of ministry in schools and we were able to do open air preaching in Peru so that's more of the stuff we were doing with them um which is really cool to be able to just like set up in a park and like preach the gospel to everyone and not be afraid of like getting caught by the police or anything um but yeah that's kind of what ministry looked like any particular stories that come to your mind uh, that were uh, powerful for you know for your group or you personally? Yeah, um, so many. I think. Just one. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think a really cool thing. This is really general, but like our team, like was so unified, which definitely wasn't the case for all the teams. I think there was, like, 17 teams from my, like, school from YWAM who were sent out. And just talking to them afterwards, like, unity definitely wasn't something that was found, like, among all of them. But my team just, like, worked really well as a unit. So it was such a blessing from the Lord um, that, like, that was the case. But specific story, um, okay, so I said we couldn't really preach, like, really publicly in Nepal. But we had this one really random opportunity where someone felt like we were supposed to like go to libraries. So we go into this library and it was like the tiniest thing ever. It's probably like a quarter of the size of this sanctuary. So we like walk in like seven white people and they're all like turned to us and everyone's like silent. We were like, okay, hi. And they were like, yeah, the library's closing in 10 minutes. We were like, okay, what are we going to do here? We like grouped up and someone was kind of like, oh, we should just like start preaching in the middle of the library. And we're all like, haha, yeah, we should totally do that. And we were like, no, like, let's actually do it. Like, why not? Um, so we like talked to the librarian. We were like, can we just like say a couple things? And he was like, yeah, sure. Like, go ahead. Um, so a couple of people like shared their testimonies and we were like able to preach the gospel, um, to like, I don't know, 20 or 30 people. And then it just opened the door to like a lot of conversations with them and like praying for people. Um, and the library was like on a university campus. So, um, the library like closed and we kind of took the conversations outside and all these students were passing by. Um, and it was really cool to see how just like really simple obedience, like, going off of this random thought, like almost a joke to like preach to these people opened up a lot of doors and we were just able to plant a lot of seeds in people. So that was cool. Very cool. Well, just as we, as we wrap up, I, I guess it's kind of a two part question. Um, what's, what's God been doing in your life personally? It sounds like there's been lots of things, but um, so that's the first part. The second part is how can we be praying for you? 
Um, yeah, this was, it's kind of cool. This year's coming to a close, and I went to YWAM, like, I think January 3rd last year, so I'm, like, loving this time of the year to reflect. Um, and I went to YWAM knowing a lot about God. Like, I grew up in the church. I, like, knew all the Sunday school answers. Um, and I think I went kind of, like, not with a lot of expectations. I kind of thought I'd, like, reach this ceiling with my relationship with God. I was like, yeah, we're chilling. Like, I pretty much made it. And then really quickly after getting there, I was like, oh, my gosh, I literally know nothing. Like, wow. Um, and, yeah, so I knew so much about God. And it was really when I, like, went to Nepal and, and like, just going to, like, a foreign nation, like, a third world country and being stripped of, like, all your comforts and, like, really putting yourself out there. Um, I just, like, yeah, had to, like, come to a realization of, like, how much I needed God and how, like, broken and sinful I was without him and, I think I left, like, my six months just, like, being able to say that, like, I actually knew God. Like, I didn't just know about him, but I actually knew him. And I had, like, gained such a hunger to know him, too, literally, like, what Ralph was talking about, kind of. Like, yeah, it was really cool to see how God stirred up such a hunger in me to know him. Because going in, I was like, well, I've made it. Like, there's nothing more for me to learn. Um, And now... Yeah, I think because of that hunger, like, it really made it so clear that the next step for me was to go into this Bible school that I'm in right now. Um, and so I think, I guess, going into, like, prayers, like, I still have six months left of my, like, Bible school that I'm in now. I'm going back in a couple of days. So I think just for, like, continued hunger and, like, discipline and really pressing into what like, all God has in this season, because um, I think it's really special to just be able to take, like, nine months to literally just study the Word. It's such a blessing, and I can't believe that it's, like, my life, and I think just clarity about what's next, um, especially in the summer, because I think I'm called back home for the summer before going back to YWAM in Kona, so just clarity about what that holds and just opportunities and stuff, so yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Chelsea. It's great that we were able to carve out a little bit of time in our in our service this morning. And uh, can we all be praying for Chelsea over the next few months? Yes. All right. Thank you. And listen. Well, 